Hey everybody, welcome to Don't Sit in the Front. This week I talked to Christian Krausby, a very funny improviser and writer. You can follow him on Twitter at LapsedChristian. We both watched the 1982 film The King of Comedy, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Robert De Niro and Jerry Lewis. It's part of a kind of series I want to do more episodes on depictions of stand-up comedy, uh, fictional and otherwise, maybe look at some more documentaries. Yeah, uh, it's something just want to try out with the format. So uh, yeah, check out Christian Krausby. We talk a lot about improv and how he came up in that and how he's been doing some improv for Second City before the pandemic. I hope everyone's having a happy Thanksgiving. And again, as always, thank you for listening. I'll get right into the episode here with Christian Krausby and talking about the king of comedy. Welcome to Don't Sit in the Front. Today I'm talking to my good friend Christian Krausby. Uh, he is uh, smirking, maybe. This is a bit weird. Where I'm on the other end of the uh, podcasting microphone for this one. A little bit ago, Christian had a very interesting and funny podcast called First Tragedy, Then Farce. I did a little bit of production help with that and some research. Uh, so I asked him if he wanted to come on this podcast. For this week's episode, we watched the 1982 Martin Scorsese film, The King of Comedy. I will also ask Christian a little bit about being, uh, he's done some improv, he's written for the stage and screen. He's also written a very cool historical fiction novel. Uh, I won't be interviewing him so much about that, but uh, Christian, how are you? And I'll find a way, I'm, I'm, I'm great. Thank you for asking, James. I'll find a way to work in plugs for everything that I do uh-huh. uh, from my basic woodworking, uh, to, I don't know, other hobbies that I have, um, cabinetry, um, you know, I I was kind of marveling at over the quarantine, you were into woodworking and stuff before, but I think really in quarantine, you might've shined, uh, moving up from, what was it doing? You're kind of like engraving or yeah, I I was engraving and like, I did like low relief. Uh, This is, I'm sure very interesting on a comedy podcast. Uh I was, I was doing low relief wood carving, which is like, you know, images that kind of come off the wood in three dimensions. Uh, but now I've just started basic woodworking and construction, making furniture and I don't know, carving wooden spoons and bowls and and mm. i usually like and like i made a table and stools and all sorts of shit i mm. made my own set of weights out of concrete and cement <laughs> yeah uh, well they became like the price of gold and like maybe more than their weight in gold when uh, the pandemic hit it was hard to get anything related to exercising yeah so i built like a pair of parallettes out of like pvc pipe so i've just become like I don't know. I've become very uh, Ron Swanson esque mm-hmm. over the pandemic. Uh, just to kind of like, like this morning, I spent most of the morning staining a chair that I have just made. So uh-huh. like, I've become my father as well. Yeah. I've <laughs> you. You also live in an apartment in the valley. Yeah. So how do yeah. you 
you, how do you get the space for that? So I have like my, I have a, like a small patio that's probably like um, three and a half feet, you know, like wide that runs the length of my apartment on the outside. So there's some, some space out there uh, to do it. And like most of my, and I use uh, hand tools, which take forever mm. and are not as good or accurate as like electric tools. Like I don't have like a table saw or a circular saw. I have a sander. Mm. Uh, and a jigsaw, which were both handheld items. But other than that, everything else is done by hand. Um, and so it doesn't take up a ton of space. I have like one bin for all my tools. Yeah, but I think it was good. A lot of people took up some kind of hobby and stuff. But you also, I say that as like, there's kind of an assumption among a lot of people about like, oh yeah, the pandemic, quarantine, a lot of time at home. But you also have a day job where you work, you go out and you're like an essential worker, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, I work at a, uh, I work at a like, um, not best to describe it. It's a, it's a mental health uh, treatment facility for young adults, uh, whether they have like problems with like depression or self harm or uh, drug or alcohol problems, mm. uh, and it's kind of like helping them transition from. It's not like I don't, I want to make it sound like like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, but it's like, uh, it's it's kind of like a halfway. Mm. Uh, thing where like they're in apartments some of them have jobs some of them go to school all of them are in therapy and it's helping them kind of try to transition to um, what we would call normal life I guess Mm. like some of them have never done their own laundry or dishes before in their life so it's kind of helping them do that we have a lot of less I teach improv there Um, oh nice uh, it's Trying to do improv with uh, someone that is a schizophrenic or has <laughs> borderline personality disorder is always interesting. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm I myself and 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 a couple of my friends were able to make it work. Mm. So you, so yeah, I was kind of alluding to the fact that you have been just kind of working at the same time. Are you just like pissed and bitter hearing about everybody complaining about getting to stay home all the time? who can work from home or does it not? No, it doesn't bother me at all. I was very, uh, very thankful to, to have a job because it helped me keep my sanity and had like a fair amount of, um, routine involved. Mm. Uh, I had friends and it also helped put things in perspective because I could see other people that were out. I went to other businesses, Mm. Uh, you know, like I'm out in the world on a daily basis so like I have friends that like, uh, and no, I'm comfortable judging them. Uh, like treated treated the the coronavirus like it's Chernobyl, yeah. like radiation. <laughs> They're like, we haven't left my apartment in three months. Mm. Uh, I'm not going, and I'm like, you can go outside, man. It's okay. Yeah. Like I I work out a lot, so like I was running. You know, I'm lucky enough to have a bike trail by my 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 apartment in north hollywood so i can Mm -hmm. run up and down it but like you know i kept the mask on other people kept like it's not that big a deal like we're outside it's okay Uh, but then like i had friends that was just they're just like what's it like to drive to to out to you know like woodland hills and i'm like it's like the same it's like to drive to woodland hills any other time yeah so it helped like kept that kind of perspective without that i think i probably would have gone a little bit of uh uh, stir crazy. 
Mm. I think you said that people treat it like their own Chernobyl. They've, I think other people who have maybe not experienced other kinds of adversity now get this big blanket one that everyone's kind of dealing with. But like, I just noticed sometimes when I was biking in like Silver Lake and I, uh, I have my mask down until I encounter someone. It sucks to bike up a hill with your mask all the way up. Yeah. And as soon as I see someone, I put it up. One day I forgot, and this woman walking her dog, just like her eyes lit up. She was just like super excited to have something to yell at someone about. She could be like a victim in that moment. And I was like, yeah, people treating it like their own personal adversity. But um, you said you did improv well uh, at your job kind of working in that but have you been able to keep it up doing it in other spaces were, were you associated with like UCB or any kind of uh, other space where were you doing improv before uh, I was doing so uh, as through as far as like theater wise I was I was doing primarily improv at Second City down in Hollywood mm. uh, which has since been closed um, to performances shows like whatever yeah um I was just about to mount a show there uh, in like the end of March. Oh, uh, it was when it was going to start. It was going to start and run in April and May there. Mm. Um, and I also had like friends that had mounted a show and gave one performance, uh-huh. and then it all got shut down. Mm. Uh, they so Second City right now they they don't have any classes in session. Um, they. Uh, they do all their classes primarily. I think probably the only one that you can really do effectively is their writing classes. They do sketch writing classes Mm. online. Still they do, uh, improv online still. Um, that's probably a little bit more challenging, especially when you get into like longer scene work and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, have you tried that at all to do any? Yeah. I've, I've tried to do some, some online improv. It's, okay there's uh, a, a couple of games that work well in terms mm. of improv and stuff like that that's fine but again when it comes into like longer like scene work and trying to do like uh i don't know sustained uh a sustained performance it's it's a it's a little bit more challenging in that regard mm-hmm. having said that i'm lucky enough to i have i have a a group of friends that uh, i meet with once a week to do uh, improv in there. They have a nice big backyard and they have a house. Mm. And so we do some socially distant, uh, improv and stuff like that. We've also met in parks and, and done some, some improv, which has always been, uh, kind of fun. So yeah, I am still doing it in terms of like show second city does a, they do free shows every week or that, you know, where they ask for donations and stuff like that. UCB, I'm not so sure about, Mm. I know that, Earlier in the summer, they were kind of uh, up a creek in terms of. There's also, and I'm and I'm not an expert in this. This is all mostly secondhand knowledge. And there's like one article that I might have read about it. Mm. Uh, UCB had made some pretty poor financial decisions yeah. in regards to their spaces in New York. Um, for those that don't know the story, they had, they opened up a, a Hell's Kitchen location. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're paying, they have one location. They had like one location that was like their kind of underground place that they always had had. Uh, that was very popular. It was also very small. Uh, and then they had a second location. They opened up in hell's kitchen and it 
was the rent on their lease was incredibly pricey. The bad news, it was not near any sort of public transportation Mm. or anything like that. It was kind of difficult to get to. So nobody was showing up to it at all. Mm. So in order to drive business there, they closed their OG location, which everybody Uh. loved. And I don't know if it kind of worked out mm-hmm. there. Same thing with their space in, in, um, the Franklin they have two locations, they have fr- two locations in, in Los Angeles. They have a, the Franklin OG theater, which is great. Yeah. Saw some of the first improv shows in, in LA there. I loved it because it felt like it was my own little underground world and community that I was a part of. Yeah. And then they, and then a few years back, they opened up their sunset location, which is just this megaplex of mm-hmm. classroom spaces and theater spaces. And there's like a cool coffee shop built in. Mm-hmm. And part of their sustain, their ability to sustain that location and that price was that they have business space underneath part of it that they could yeah. rent out. They weren't able to really uh, secure businesses to get that. Yeah. So, and they've also, you know, and they laid off uh, most of their employees and stuff like it's. It's been a whole sort of. It's left a real bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. Second City itself is up for sale right now, mm. um, which I'm not like concerned about. Second City, just as a brand name, is worth money. Yeah, there's, there's no point in in anybody getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just trying to to sell it, and it's not the first time it's been sold. It's been sold once or twice before. So I'm not like concerned about my future at second city, which I kind of consider to be like my, as most comedians have a home club. That is what I would consider kind of my home operating base. I hope to always have a relationship with, Mm. with those people. Um, I know I, you're you're personally, uh, from Chicago, uh, for yeah. those, Christian's wearing a Cubs shirt right now. <laughs> I, oh God. Uh, I didn't realize just how much I must come off as, as well, it's a opposing my, it's opposing my Milwaukee shirt. Uh, yeah. but, uh, we can come together on the uh, West coast and it's fine. But the, but you are from the Chicago area and did you kind of grow up with that name then in your head? I mean, everybody started to learn about it obviously through the comedians that came out of there, but did it have a kind of special place for you coming up in improv? Uh, yeah, well it did. It did. And it, and it kind of didn't, I think it was something that I took for granted fairly or like I knew, you know, like, I don't know if anybody told me or it's just something that like you grow up absorbing is <laughs> just yeah. that, like, Oh Yeah. Uh, you just knew that Bill Murray was from Chicago mm-hmm. and like you just associated uh, those kinds of things with the Chicago comedy scene mm. naturally. And um, I, I think in, in terms of taking it for granted, like right when I was like in, I don't know, middle school, high school age, that's where their big Renaissance had kind of happened. That's where Chris Farley and Tina Fey and Amy. That's when all those people were in Chicago doing theater. One of my teachers uh, at Second City, uh, a, a woman by the name of Jenna Jolovitz, uh, she comes out of that scene and, and knows all those guys. And and it's her approval that I work for more than my own parents, I think, <laughs> probably, like, in my life. when The day that she's given me a compliment is, like, the, like the night I can't sleep because... Yeah. <laughs> I want to like maintain that and like, but at the same time, like I don't want to let down Jenna. 
Mm. So uh, it's, uh, I, yeah. And then I had a bunch of friends that were really into the Chicago comedy scene. Uh, mm. Ones that I did improv with in, in college. And I want to stress that we were not a good, we were called the surgeon generals. It's like a surge <laughs> of water. <laughs> I don't, it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't. None of, none of it makes sense. That's the glory of improv is just like, None of it is good. <laughs> uh, part, I have some questions in mind uh, that are sort of in the chamber about why is improv not good, but uh, but also, uh, but in jest, but kind of like why do people hate it so much? But but go on. I think it will. Go uh, yeah, no, I, and I have. I think I have answers for all those things. Yeah. None of it is good except for when it is good. There's nothing mm. better or like it. Yeah, and it's. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, and this is going to sound really corny, but it's a magic that kind of exists in one place and one time and it's very mm-hmm. fleeting and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't, uh, there, uh, there's been a couple improvisers, another Chicago improviser guy named Mick Napier, uh, writes about the, uh, comedy and the law of, uh, thermodynamics where, hmm. You know, it, it's it's at a comedy is at a constant rate of decay until mm-hmm. you can come up with the next joke or like the next bit or like the next energy. And I think where as opposed to stand up, the ability to add energy or continually to add to the to the the flame, especially organically versus like I have a written set of stuff is much more unstable much more volatile and much more likely to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, when you can do it and you can do it organically and naturally, I'm rambling now at this point. Mm-hmm. I have friends that went down to do um, uh, Improv Olympic, which is like the big one right. where Mike Myers and Chris Farley and all those guys, that's where they did it. They have since shut down their doors completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, controversially, students that had paid for classes that did not take those classes, did not get refunds. Right. Um, I had a girlfriend that worked as a bartender in one of the improv Olympic theaters. Mm. Um, uh, the one in in Los Angeles had shut down way before this. Nobody was going to it. They also didn't have like a liquor license or they did or didn't. I don't remember. There's a whole Mm. thing. Uh, Andy Dick famously tried to screw my girlfriend. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at one point it's like uh, that is kind of like a midwestern boy moved out to the west coast kind of like ooh, he's got a good like secondhand connection like that but uh, that's happened to like a lot of people it sounds like yeah yeah it's, yeah, 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 it's yeah, a yeah. common thing yeah so uh yeah i and, and i have friends most of them i have one friend uh my old roommate in college his name is scott uh nelson he you know uh, has has had points in his life, and it's not an easy thing to do. Where you can make your living as an improviser and a comedian. Mm. Um, now it's obviously with the pandemic, it's a little bit harder. But he is like the person I look up to. That like immediately after college knew what he wanted to do and pursued it, and keeps pursuing it. And has been successful at it relatively. Mm. It's not it's not the most financially viable thing to do, but you can do it. If you can do it, that means you're really good at it. So, mm-hmm.
Yeah, I have questions I ask every guest almost always about stand-up specifically. I'm not sure how this is going to work and it might skew and I know you're more into improv sketch, but yeah. I know you also like stand-up, so we'll see how it works. But uh, sure. what is your earliest memory of liking stand-up? Oh, uh, this is also a very Midwestern thing. Uh, road trips. Uh, we had like three or four Jeff Foxworthy CDs uh-huh. that um, we listened to and like, I, I understand why people don't like Jeff or kind of like roll their eyes when they hear the name mm. Jeff Foxworthy because there's a lot of tropes that are associated with his act. Yeah. But well, the dude's a the dude's a great comedian. Like yeah. and to do it, you know, especially now there's a real emphasis on, you know, or there can be a lot of emphasis on shock value and, mm. and stuff like that. He's one hundred percent clean. Right. And like wholesome and yeah, I, I I love Jeff Foxworthy when I was younger. I thought it was mm-hmm. he's just the funniest guy in the world. Um, We're around the same yeah. age. I think the, like the blue collar comedy thing blew up. I think when we were in middle school, high school, maybe. But yeah, probably. Then he got he was very clean. Then he got kind of lumped in though with like Larry the Cable Guy, Ron White. Yeah, it's very like filthy. Yeah, it became like it became a. Uh, like, hey, this is these are champions of ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to um these are really well crafted one liners yeah. that are yeah, perfect encapsulations of different parts of American society. Then it was just like my dog or whatever is like, yeah, I couldn't I did not like the uh blue collar uh what what it t- what it turned Jeff Fox really into. I also heard recently though he's just crazy rich. Oh God! Yeah, from comedy, but then more so from that. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Show it's been on way more way way more seasons than you would think, and it's just funny to think that he has kind of also pulled him into that direction. But makes sense with the wholesome kind of thing you're referring to. And I'm not like proud of this, um, but I was on the cutting edge before the MySpace success of Dane Cook. Uh Uh, I had his, his, I had recorded his 30 minute premium blend on comedy. So this is like when I was like a sophomore in high school, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Because he blew up, uh, in when I was college age, when mm. he had like, he was like the MySpace comedian. Yep. And, um, yeah, I, I had bought his like first CD and I remember playing it for friends Mm-hmm. And being like, isn't this guy hilarious? And, you know, they agreed, but it wasn't, yeah. you know, several years before he kind of blew up. And then I rolled my eyes, like as someone who, you know, liked an indie band before they were cool, yeah. like, felt some sort of like ownership that like now I had to cast off because he was widely accepted. Yeah, for sure. I think I've, I've had a couple basically... I think almost all of the white men around my age I've had on this show so far as guests, his name has to come up just because of like how big he was in the culture at that time. Mm-hmm. But then also like, did you play a sport in high school? Uh-huh. Yeah. I, cause he, his movie waiting just ruined like an entire like four year period of like locker room kind of experience just with all of the like, the bad yeah. thing and the, that just kind of like poisoned our generation for a little bit of uh yeah that became everyone's uh sense of humor and personality for a little bit so yeah definitely a big influence good and bad 
I remember the the locker room quoted thing the most was the movie Friday with huh. Ice Cube and Chris Tucker. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Also, Wayne's World. All these these <laughs> movies also came out seven years before they were uh, widely <laughs> quoted in my high school. But that's that's really weird. Yeah, that's the that's the wave we rode on. I guess. Um, <laughs> just weird. Not Anchorman, not no. uh, yeah, not no. old school. Just they're like, wait a minute, nineteen ninety three. Yeah, my freshman year of college, the the two big movies were Van Wilder mm. and Old School. Yep, like because those are both college comedies, mm-hmm. and they were very successful. Um, yeah, those were like the movies that you had to own and watch and memorize mm-hmm. every line. And I did. I'm also like saying all of this out loud. I'm really embarrassed at how kind of basic bitch my yeah. comedy. <laughs> I can help. Is. Yeah. So I can help spin you into like, okay, so we went, uh, Jeff Foxworthy when you're very young, uh, then you sort of Dane cook, you're on the cutting edge, but no one's going to recognize it or uh, admit that and let you, let you have that but then when did you when did you start finding stand-up where you're really like oh this is uh something maybe different or the things you could really kind of claim is like uh i think because you're kind of into more alternative comedy stuff now so i wonder how you got more into that yeah so uh how i got more into that is i got an xm radio right when i graduated or like my parents got like an xm and i got like one of the like companion radios that you get with a yeah. subscription. My parents just gave me one. Another early adapter cutting edge. Yeah. I'm yeah. always <laughs> right there on the cusp. You're an innovator. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, they had, there were two shows and I discovered them on a road trip to Florida. Cause I was trying, it's not a long story. Um, <laughs> was the Opie and Anthony show. Mm, yeah. And the Ron and Fez show. Mm. And both of them, featured they i mean jim norton was on opie and anthony um Mm. and then they had before any of any of their success louis ck bill burr patrice o'neill bobby kelly Mm. um jim florentine mike berbiglia Mm. um rich voss um any you know anybody in the anybody who's like a amy schumer anybody that's a famous comic right now kevin mm-hmm. hart that's traced back to new york we're all early like mid 2000s regulars on opie and anthony and right. then ron and fez and even the next iteration of the show bennington today which i am a diehard fan of mm-hmm. um he does a shit ron bennington who's a former uh st- or he is a stand-up has this radio show and he hosts it with his daughter gail they have on Matteo Lane, uh, who I absolutely adore. Um, Joe List, who I like quite a bit. Yeah, um, yeah they have a they have a they have a ton of people on there on a you know uh, on a on a daily basis that I listen to their interviews with, and so that's kind of how I started to discover more um, East East Coast comics who yeah. inevitably be who. East Coast comics are West Coast comics. They're just like a couple paychecks <laughs> behind <Yeah. laughs> moving to the other side. Right. So, yeah. Like Bill Burr, who is like this working class Boston comic, is now like a Santa Monica comic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. how I view him now. So, mm. yeah. 
as a um as a perf well no i'll go to this one so what do you think is your favorite location to see stand up when we could see it in person honestly um i mean i've i've seen i've seen shows in like like kind of the formal stand-up venues in los angeles whether it is like um, the Improv or the Laugh Factory or Flappers in Burbank, which is right down the street from me. Mm. And those are kind of like the more traditional things, like a menu and you sit down and there's, yeah. you know, that's, that's fine. Um, but I, I prefer, like, I do a lot of shows that are improv, stand-up mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, I, I love those. Mm. And I like the fact that I feel like I can see um, I feel like I can see, I, I like, this might explain why I like improv so much. I like when things are not polished and they are not perfect. Mm. I love mistakes. I love when people are trying to figure it out. I've always think things are a little bit better with dirt on them or involved in some sort of way. I, I kind of like the awkwardness and the uncomfortability of a smaller room. Mm-hmm. I like a nice black box theater with, you know, mostly your friends. Yeah. Audience. I think that that's more, um, I think that's just more fun. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's, that's the time where you get to see the most honest, the most honesty and the most kind of raw stuff. When I think, you know, you see a, a somebody that's done a, a, doing a special that's been rehearsed and practiced for hours and hours and hours. There's not, it's been talked about and analyzed and, and considered and, and, and made to check as many boxes of appealing as possible. Yeah. And I, and I rather have, um, something that is like, was really funny to us performer last night and they wrote it down Mm. and they're trying it out the next day and it's just bombs completely. (laughs) Or I even, I even, especially in, Especially in today's climate, I love it, you know, because comedy, you walk a fine line. It's somebody's feelings are getting hurt in a joke, no matter what. I love it when, like, they have not uh, considered all the angles <laughs> to how something could be offensive. Yeah, then they you know what I mean? Like, time. yeah, I, I, I love it and because that's honest and because they're trying. And I never hold anybody... Uh, I would I would be more concerned with like somebody that's like doing a special and he's like the other thing about black people like mm. that would be probably much more problematic for somebody that's trying to work stuff out that they just wrote down or trying to hone their their act a little bit. That's forgivable yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, but then again, you know, I don't have a whole lot to be offended about in the first place. So, yeah, that's just me. I'm remembering that the f- the only I think it's the only time I've seen live improv was the musical improv show on Friday nights at UCB. It was with you. Oh yeah, uh, was it? I th- we probably went to go see Diamond Lion. I would imagine. Not Diamond Lion. I feel like it had a more generic name than that. I won't think of it. But I mean, it was amazing, and I mean, it was at the UCB Franklin. And this had to be in like 2012 or something. It was a long time ago. It's got to have been Diamond. Was Thomas Middleditch in the cast? He was not. I would remember that. No. 
and I'll be a dick and I can't remember who the other people were in that cast. Um, I know there's a famous musical improv guy that was a part of it, but um, uh, I mean, that was amazing and adding the music element to it too of improv already being kind of like this feat that we're all witnessing and then mm-hmm. it was all working out musically too was amazing. I was very impressed with it. Mm-hmm. But then yeah, outside of seeing that, I have not seen it I could never get a uh, like a middle ditch and Schwartz ticket at UCB, and then, you know now they're on Netflix with that. So that mm-hmm. when that comes, if they come back with that, I can't imagine they'll be doing that in a real small space. But um, yeah, those are my only uh, live improv. Uh, that is my only live improv experience. Uh, I wonder too, though, because we kind of talked about black box theater, how it's small. You like how it's a little bit less polished. Uh, as a performer, what type of show or location feels like a home game and what feels like an away game? Oh, um, what feels like a a home game? Um, (laughs) what feels like a home game is anything like, you know, I'd mentioned at black box theater, maybe there are, the theater is 25 to 50% full. Mm. Most of them are other improvisers and or comedians that are performing and their friends. Um, that's easily a home game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the away game is getting paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where people yeah. are depending uh, on you making them laugh. Yeah. Um, the surgeon general, this is a quick story. Oh yeah. I totally, I shit on it and I cut off your surgeon general uh, oral history. Yeah. The yeah. surgeon generals uh, had, I think maybe one or two paying gigs, but, we got paid to do, there was a, on campus, there was a conference for um, uh, something to do with like, it was kind of a, a thing for uh, autistic kids or kids with learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so there was like 200 autistic kids from their school. They were kind of all bussed in from surrounding locations. Mm. And they had a magician that went on first and then it was us. Mm-hmm. and it was during the day so most of us had classes at the time so it was i just so happened to not but the people that also did not we also kind of we kind of had like an a team and a b team yeah and we had to kind of farm out uh, just to get enough bodies to perform to some of our less uh, our, our our less uh, seasoned uh, athletes yeah yeah, and, and uh, I'll never forget uh, the the magician went long, leaving <laughs> us five minutes yeah. to do an improv set. And we were supposed to have something like a half hour. And it, the worst, like the the worst ex- experience I've ever had on stage was um, myself and and my good buddy sam weller who i you know is i had done a podcast with and he mm. was one of the other performers with me we we tell this story today um the suggestion we got mm. why we got it from either one of the kids or one of their teachers or someone that was with them mm-hmm. was a gnc the body of water uh in uh in the Mediterranean. Okay, you said <laughs> you said a GNC. Yeah. I thought a GNC, <laughs> like the, yeah, yeah. the vitamin warehouse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, I. You did exactly what happened in the scene. So <laughs> the suggestion was a GNC. Yeah. Okay. Myself and Sam, 
heard it as a GNC, like you just said, a general yeah. nutrition center. Yes. <laughs> we start a scene as a couple of bodybuilders at a GNC discussing protein powder. Yeah. <laughs> One of the less experienced improvisers, and you can tell he was not because he clearly had ignored everything that had taken place on stage already. Right. Runs onto the playing area and goes, Come, Hephaestion! Uh, the the Trojans are mounting a defense. We must don our honor and defend Troy. And myself and Sam kind of look at each other and we're like pantomiming having big muscles. Yeah. And we kind of look at each other like, because the rules of improv clearly state <laughs> we have to go along with it. We just kind of go, yeah, that's right. We better get to this war, which is like... It's never a good idea in an improv scene where you have to go do something. You should yeah. be doing it right there. But like talking about where you're going to go, <laughs> we're like, we know we're not going to cut to a battle. We're not going to do any of that stuff. Like mm. we, it was just, it was the, it was the, and just like, I remember looking at the faces of these kids with learning disabilities, mm. just like more confused than, <laughs> and like not have, not a single laugh. Yeah. Not having a good time. And like, yeah. and I wonder if like, and I've always like wondered if like later on, if, if any of them like either a felt like worse because they thought that they were supposed to understand and mm. didn't or B felt so much better because if these guys are supposed to be good at what they do. Yeah. <laughs> And they tell me that I have a learning disability. Yeah. I could run circles around these idiots. <laughs> I, I, I'm sad that I blew up the, which is basically the meta joke of that scene uh, by questioning you about no, it. No, it's fine. I mean, you did what, what anybody would do. The point is, is that because you're supposed to be listening mm-hmm. to like what's going on, <laughs> that you would have picked up on the, how it is being carried. Right. Or if 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 like you know he would have come on stage as a as a Greek hoplite mm. and gone like, oh, you guys come here too for your protein powder, Hephaestion, Theseus, yeah. like that would have been fine as well. Like married the two ideas together. Mm. It's not important. That's just yeah. yeah. But we got paid for that and should not have been. We should have given <laughs> the money back. Yeah. Uh, and I talk about like the fun of things having dirt on it. I'm talking about people that understand how to crack a joke and have it doesn't dirt go on as it. planned. Maybe. Yeah, that's fine. But there are, you know, I've seen, I've seen people where I'm like, Oh yeah, this guy's going to stab somebody in the parking lot after the show. is yeah. over. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've seen like shows with like stone cold psychos. Yeah. And like, who are like really, and this might be a transition to king of comedy. Like, or honestly, Rupert Pupkin, yeah. who are like delusional and like do the same act word for word. It never gets a laugh. So I, there's one performer. I don't remember his name. I, I saw him at a couple different shows when I first moved to LA. He did the same exact, uh, same exact act word for word. Never got a single laugh, made everybody in the audience extremely uncomfortable because it was about like chaining up his sister in his basement or something like that. Mm. It was really like disturbing. And he was not to mention like 
55 yeah. in a room of like younger people and like did yeah. not that was something that didn't exist i mean if you were older and do stand up that's fine i don't believe that that comedy has an age i think mel brooks is just as funny in his 90s than than he was before mm. but you have to acknowledge that that's not yeah. something that can be like glossed over <laughs> and yeah and, and and you and there are there are people that yeah, uh, even now I do improv shows with that I've seen around that do stand up that I've been booked on shows with and seen them a couple times to where I'm like a first name basis with them, but like I'm also terrified of them mm. because like I think that they probably have, you know, they probably written written letters to Conan O'Brien with increasing intensity. Yeah, <laughs> like why won't you return? <laughs> why won't you return my calls? Yeah, like, that'll be a good. I want to put a pin in in that energy. Sure. Uh, and just ask you, I start when I ask these questions, every guest, I start with the uh, bad one and then get to the good one. But what yeah. is your worst memory related to stand up? It might be an improv related memory. No, I can do it because I, I, I tried to do stand up uh, when I first when I first moved to L.A. I, what I wanted to do, I didn't want to do stand up. I just wanted to be a joke writer. Yeah. And, um, I had no real desire. I've always liked stand up. I think stand up's great, but I have no desire to, to do that really. Mm. Um, I, I tried to do stand up a couple times and I, I went to, um, try to do some open mics and like the energy there is usually pretty uncomfortable and like sad for lack of a better term, <laughs> because yeah. like most of these people aren't very good um and like they either like know they're not very good mm. or like are under the delusional that they're awesome and yeah. are being held back by the universe for like whatever reason mm-hmm. and i remember going on stage and and i didn't write anything i don't know why i didn't write down like i had like a couple like set like chunks of stuff I wanted to talk about on stage, but I didn't write anything down. And I was super nervous mm. going on stage at the Ha Ha Cafe in in North Hollywood, which is not my favorite place. Yeah. And um the host brought me on stage and I didn't know what to do and like i went up to shake his hand but i always see them on tv they always hug the yeah. host <laughs> and so i went to put my arm around him <laughs> like a hug i don't know why this and he put his arm to my chest like whoa dude <laughs> and it was on stage in front of everybody and it was so humiliating mm. and i did all my routine there was like a joke about, I remember it, there was a joke about Andrew Zimmerman from the food network. Um, uh, he did this bizarre food show mm-hmm. and I always loved his tags. Like right before they cut to commercial and they were always something, they always got increasingly more and more absurd. Mm-hmm. And one of them honestly was, and this is not something I made up. It was like, you're used to seeing bark on the outside of a tree, but when we come back, I'm going to drink it. i thought that was the funniest thing in the world and so but i also i I did stuff like that but also did it at maybe 800 words a minute i was so nervous i just (laughs) sped all the way through it nobody really laughed all that much Mm. um 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So you just, but so you, it's a bomb story, but what is your best, uh, standup related memory? Oh, my best standup related memory. Um, I, it's, it's, I wish they were, you know, and again, we'll talk about this more when it comes to King of comedy, but like, you're always able to remember, um, the things that didn't work out well better than you can the times that you did win. Um, yeah. that, that shame sticks with you so much better than victory. Mm-hmm. Um, any, any time that like, I'm just about any time that I'm able, there's a group of improvisers that I, that I, that I know through second city, um, who I'll tell all the listeners of this, uh, Colin, Adam, crystal, uh, Estables, uh, Benjamin, those guys, uh, whenever I get to do a show with them, uh, and we are able to collectively get laughs together. Um, there is no better feeling in the whole world. Mm. Um, because like there is this, this is going to sound corny. There is this, this is it was, it's probably what it was like to be like an early member of like Fleetwood Mac where uh-huh. like we all love each other. Like before, like we ended up like having affairs and, you know, sleeping around and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, we're, there's this level of friendship, but then also this, this wonderful, um, organic chemistry that we all have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to, to combine those two things together is one of the best feelings that I've ever had. Yeah. And it's, it's part of, you know, what bums me out so much about the pandemic is that I can, I see those guys on zoom and I'm, I've seen all of them, uh, at least like once throughout the pandemic in person, but not seeing them on a weekly basis. That, I mean, that thing, us getting together became like the thing to, it became our fight club, the thing to look forward to every week. Yeah. Uh, you know, the reason that you cut your hair short or trim your fingernails, like that, became, <laughs> that became like the, that the thing, if you had a bad week, you know, well, at least, you know, on Saturday and Sunday, I get to do improv with those guys. Yeah. So that's been like the hardest thing is being without them. But like when that works very well with them, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm ultra interested in these fictional depictions of stand-up comedy. Um, and I'd always heard of King of Comedy, a 1982 film by Martin Scorsese, stars Robert De Niro as the stand-up comedy uh, main character, a man named Rupert Pupkin. It also stars Jerry Lewis. Jerry Langford. The, yeah, the host, kind of a Carson-esque figure, a legendary late-night host named Jerry Langford. Uh, and, uh, first, I guess, uh, when I pitched it to you, Christian, you had said you'd love to watch it. I wonder how had you heard about it? Uh, had you seen it before? Yeah, I had seen it before. It'd been years. Uh, I think like I watched it back in graduate school. I had, because it was referenced tying it back in, it was referenced on Opie and Anthony all the time. Oh, right. Hmm. Um, because most standups love the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think I might have watched it in graduate school, uh, got it through Netflix or something like that. But like, I, I, I really like the movie. Watching it now, being like older and being involved in the comedy scene a little bit more, mm. it, I'm even more uncomfortable by it. And I, I'm even more uncomfortable by it. And then also delight even more in uh, the comedy the unintentional uncomfortable comedy that comes up uh, yeah 
the um I had heard about it so much more after Joker came out. Yeah. Uh, the 2019 Joker. And just, I think that that predisposed my mind to watch this film to be think to find it much darker than mm-hmm. it is. It is dark on its own, yeah. but that gave me such a different lens uh, because I was waiting for a much more violent, uh, ending. Yeah. Um, but just kind of to run through the plot, uh, there will be spoilers for this film, but uh, King of Comedy against stars Robert De Niro. This is a very weird uh, Scorsese film for me, I think. I have been predisposed to think of all his, his films basically post-Goodfellas. So then to look at some of this earlier, and then Taxi Driver is also very different tonally than I think mm-hmm. this one. But that seems to be kind of borrowing on that uh, look at isolation on uh, these kind of strange figures in American society at that time. But uh, yeah, the unintentional comedy, I think is uh, you nailed it to think about some things are so hilarious about how awkward this guy is. But that was one of my first reactions was just how strange it is to see Robert De Niro playing someone with uh, it's not that he no has status, no status. And it's not yeah. that he has no confidence. It's just uh, it's a, an arrogance or a complete, detachment from reality it's very yeah, delusion yeah yeah i my favorite scenes in this are the ones that he's created in his mind oh yeah because like when you know he's he has the fantasy towards the beginning about jerry asking him to take over the show for six weeks and he's refusing mm-hmm. jerry i can't do it ask me anything can't yeah. do this and he's had this then he he's thought it all out in his mind and it's it's robert de niro is playing a character who's playing a character in a fantasy. Mm. And it's just, there's like a lot of weird levels to it. And it's just mm-hmm. super interesting. And you can just see it happening in a movie where that's not ironic. Mm-hmm. But it, it just casts the whole thing in such an interesting, interesting light. Um, yeah, I wonder, does it, because you had mentioned you kind of doing improv, uh, you'll run into these people that are, they have a delusion maybe about the likelihood of their success if they were to continue the art form they're pursuing. Yeah. But there must be within, you know, miles of us in a radius right now, there could be people with like that have that kind of like cutouts in their living room practicing their their late night performance, thinking like, if only I can get my in, I'll be on. Yeah, I, I don't, that's not a, I, I, that's not a far-fetched thing whatsoever. You know, I've met, um, I was in a, 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 a class that Flappers did that was uh, about writing for late night, mm. um, specifically. And there was a woman that showed up, she took the first day uh, and left at the break. She's just like, she's just like, oh, I feel like I don't need any, any of this stuff. Mm. And like I'd heard her jokes that she had pitched or had like written like through the first you know hour and a half of the first class, mm-hmm. and was like, "You're terrible at this," mm-hmm. like one hundred percent. And then you know there are people that I know that, um, no doubt, um, no doubt have the thing where it's like, "Oh well, here's what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to go. I'm going to audition for you know the big thing used to be you audition for." Um, Mitzi Shore at the Laugh Factory. Yeah. And then, you know, she usually never takes anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it's like come back in three years or like whatever. 
you know, she says some horrible thing to you that crushes your soul. And it's supposed mm-hmm. to lead to this personal enlightenment. And, you know, you enter the cave and reemerge as Patton Oswald or whatever. Yeah. And like, that's what's supposed to happen. But like, no, no, I, I go there and Patton Oswald in his book, silver screen fiend talks about like a friend that he had that was just like, can you get me on at the Largo? Mm-hmm. And Patton Oswald's like, you don't want to start there. He's like, mm-hmm. no, I'm going to go on stage at the Largo. I'm going to have a good set. I'm going to get offered a sitcom and that's it. And Patton Oswalt like kind of just like, well, you're an old friend. So, okay. So he gets him on stage there. The guy bombs mm-hmm. and literally like disillusioned walks into the night and like yeah. never hears from the guy ever again. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there is, there is that kind of magical thinking of like, Oh, well, yeah, the reason that I'm going to be a successful comedian is I'm just going to go and I'm just going to have really good sets mm. and, you know, I'll get discovered that way. As if, like, that's not something other people had thought about. Yeah. Like, considered before. It's, it's, um, yeah. Uh, but I, I understand that. And, I, and I've probably had that to myself to some degree as well. Well, if I just get this thing, if I just get this TV pilot sold, then everything will work out mm. and it's just un, unrealistic. You know, you and I both know someone that has had, you know, success, but like you can't turn on the TV and find anything that they've done. They're not a household name. There's, you know, probably yeah. a million screenwriters and authors that like, uh, are probably better known or like whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's, it's all kind of relative. It's, it's, oh, there's always going to be a struggle, whether you're like Stephen King or like the guy at, you know, the, whether you're Christian at the haha ha cafe in 2012, yeah. <laughs> trying to hug the host. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you think it, uh, do you think it plays differently in 2020? Um, like one of the things that it immediately caught my attention is it's funny to, it was funny to me to see Jerry Lewis as this, to ever think of a throng of screaming women uh, chasing after Jerry Lewis, maybe early 60s when he's like the height of like his comedy films. But I think that's always the kind of the read on him is like they weren't uh, as popular here. And like in France, he was like a king or whatever. But maybe like early 1982, yeah. 1982, Jerry Lewis and women climbing on top of his cab trying to or his. No, trying that's, to <laughs> no, maybe in Europe. Yeah. Maybe in Europe, but like the joke was always that like, and I, I, obviously I, I'm sure my, my, my parents or somebody that's older could correct me, but like the joke of like the Rat Pack, I always thought mm. was just that like Jerry Lewis is the funny one and Dean Martin always gets the girl. Yeah. And like his thing was just to kind of be like the kind of like plucky, mm. funny guy. And yeah, that was I, it. I was looking up, uh, I did some, just try to do some research around the film only to relate to the depth of like Wikipedia and maybe a couple other clicks in, but like the, one of the people Martin Scorsese wanted for the role originally was Dean Martin. Yeah. I, uh, could, I mean, I could see that. Yeah. And then, um, I think it was Bob Fosse was a, an early director attached to it, uh, and suggested Andy Kaufman for the role of Rupert Pupkin. Uh, which oh my I think god, that would have been weird. It would have been 
very weird. I think much darker. That's kind of one of my lingering questions is like Robert De Niro, I think is really good in it, but do you think he captured kind of the pathos and the, the like pathological nature, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that Robert De Niro's, um, I, I think it could all be summed up in the wide shot of him waiting in the office mm of where you have this the secretary and him him sitting kind of anxiously with his briefcase in his bad suit mm-hmm. waiting to be discovered and like nervously wanting um he you see in there that like he knows that he's not supposed to be there you mm-hmm. see the internal struggle of like his mental illness saying no rupert you gotta stay there and then like the same voice in his head being like, this is insane. You need to leave right now. And him losing to the fantasy inside of his head every single time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that Robert De Niro also is somebody that is, and I've always thought this is really funny. Uh, you know, Robert De Niro is famously bad himself as an actor in on talk shows. Oh. And that's become like uh, a joke now. It's like, we're going to have Robert De Niro on and they joke about how bad he is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's become the new bit. But like his impression of a, per- of a celebrity on a talk show is flawless. Yeah. Where he's, he's just like, you know, you guys don't want to see that, do you? You, want me yeah. to, you guys don't want to hear me sing a song. And, and then the yeah. crowd obviously like... Oh, his fantasy of actually getting on the show and being like the regular guest and like yeah. the even weirder part with his wedding on there. Yeah. So, but he, he nails that when it still has some kind of realism to that fantasy. And it's, and it's so weird because you would think that like Robert De Niro would be like, Oh yeah, I played a character that's good on talk shows. Why can't I just do that in real life? I yeah. don't, I don't understand, but whatever. In in looking at, you can find this all on the Wikipedia page for the film, but just I thought the interesting thing I pulled out from there about Robert De Niro was he went very method with it. So he, in preparation for it, uh, spent weeks or months. Uh, f- he did, his exercise was to get in that mindset by stalking his stalker. So he had a stalker. And then he also had these people that were hounding him for his autograph. And then his practice then was to get in the mindset of what it would be to follow those people and find them. So he did the Rupert Pupkin thing in reverse to the people that are Rupert Pupkining him. Really? That's Which is really weird. Yeah. That is truly insane. Uh, so he finally <laughs> confronted. He, this is according to the unauthorized uh, biography of him quoted on the Wikipedia page. There's a couple levels of, yeah, but, but the, uh, he confronted his stalker when his stalker was with his wife, uh, and said like, why do you follow me? And he's like, the guy was then obviously embarrassed and then kind of started to realize how weird it was. And he's just like, Oh, I just wanted to have dinner with you. Maybe have a drink, which is almost exactly what Rupert Pupkin is doing in the beginning mm-hmm. uh, to Jerry Langford. Yeah. You have this fantasy that things are going to be, that you're going to be friends with this person. And like, mm-hmm. as like, I have like this idea, like there are people that you watch like on TV. Uh, Sam Rockwell is this person that I feel like, Hey, if we hung out, we would have a great time together. Uh-huh. Same thing with, and I'm a huge, I think my probably favorite comedian is Patton Oswalt. Mm-hmm. As I've mentioned several times, mm-hmm. um, his name, but like, I always feel like, Oh yeah, we'd be able to hang out and it would be great. 
I think that's kind of one of the reasons Twitter is so popular is like mm-hmm. this person feels almost accessible to you. Yeah. There are lots of people and everybody has them are like, man, you know, if me and Tim Allen just got together, we'd just, you know, be a couple <laughs> old friends. I feel like, I feel like Tim Allen being from Michigan was like the safe person that someone from Illinois and Wisconsin could poke fun at. I, I did a I did a paper in graduate school on comedy and particularly why humans laugh. And mm. the the theory one of the theories is is that it's a it's a trait left over from our from our ape ancestors uh, and and most of our like you know animal ancestors of uh, showing our teeth hmm. um, as as not not only as an act of aggression but it's all based um, in a in a in a defensive uh, posture of that will never happen to me. Right. Um, I'm laughing, you know, as Mel Brooks again, famously said comedy is when, or tragedy is when I prick my finger. Comedy is when you fall into a vat of chocolate pudding. Mm. It is, it's, 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 you're being defensive of, of like, say somebody slips and falls and you laugh at it. You're showing your teeth because that would never happen to you. Mm. And you were being defensive almost against the act itself. Mm -hmm. So comedy and I, my two favorite genres are comedy and horror. And to me, they are the same thing or two opposite sides of the exact same coin. Oh, like they I'm glad are, that's not happening to me. Yeah. Screaming, um, laughing are to me more intrinsically related than I think probably a lot of people give them credit for. Mm. Um, yeah. It's all about we live our lives on a sorry for getting on like my uh, <laughs> academic soapbox. We live our mm. lives according to these systems of control. When we drive down the street, we're not expecting a 747 to crash in the street 100 yards in front of our car. We're expecting Mm -hmm. the lights to turn. We're expecting maybe an ambulance to drive by. We're expecting somebody to change lanes. These are all expected things in our system that we exist within. Mm -hmm. But when something breaks through that system, a joke is a great way for the mind to hit reset really quickly. Mm. as is being scared, it snaps us out of that system that we're in. Hmm. And that's why I think that those things are related. Basically. Mm. That's my, that's my own personal take on it. Yeah. Again, I, I, I like how you mentioned comedy and horror watching this. I was waiting for it to be much darker than it is. And then Mm -hmm. in reading about it, the, the ending where he kind he finally gets his late night slot. uh, And then, sets up basically like you can arrest me uh, as soon and I'll let uh, Jerry Langford, the hostage go who is mm-hmm. hilariously taped with 30 rolls of duct tape to a chair by Sandra Bernhardt and Robert yeah. De Niro in an apartment uh, nearby. Sandra Bernhardt's pretty funny in this. Uh, and I like the interaction between there's kind of two people with their delusions. Yeah. Kind of trying to uh, one up each other. It's like, you're not, I'm not the crazy one. You're the crazy one. I like kind of like their dynamic there. Yeah. But he finally gets his late night slot uh, and then goes to jail. And then it kind of gives you this montage of uh, newspaper headlines and things where he uh, gets, does his time practices stand up in prison and then comes out and becomes uh, sort of the new, the King of comedy, the titular right. King of comedy. Uh, apparently like some readings of the film are like, that is all a fantasy. I wonder what you think of that, that ending. If you think it is, I assumed it was was real. I thought it was more a commentary about how we're ultimately the ones responsible for creating mm. these people as the audience, as the whoever the the host is that opens 
the show in the movie for him says, yeah. you know, it's, and it's all up to you. Mm. Um, I've always taken that to mean that's like, it's more of a thing. It's just like, we crave, um, characters like this mm-hmm. and, um, it's, it's in our control. I mean, one, I mean, there's a, there's a Trump reference to be made at some point, but like, you know, we, we were responsible for creating our own, um, demons and, 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 and if not directly, then creating the society, which rewards that behavior, mm. you know, we hear about the person who the actor who was waiting tables and gets plucked out to be, I don't know, somebody in some movie or, mm-hmm. you know, we, we like these stories cause we hope that it kind of, kind of happens to us. The, and then they're like, and then success by infamy is not new at all. The hero stratus in, in, Greek history is the person who burned down the temple of Athena to, mm. to, to gain, you know, if you hear hero fame, that's it's, mm. you know, uh, fame by, by destruction or, or by damage or, you know, some sort of heresy committed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the exact, it's the exact type of thing. So that impulse is, is part of our nature. Mm. I'm glad you connected it uh, to that idea of, yeah, Trump or the president the kind of creating our own demons. And I really think this film would play differently if made in an era of social media. And I'm not saying this should or anything really should be rebooted. But if we did a reboot, mm-hmm. who are you casting in the three major roles? You got the Sandra Bernhardt role of uh, Masha. Jerry Lewis is Jerry Langford. And then Robert De Niro is Robert Pupkin. I'll give you, I can give you my thoughts. Yeah, yeah, please do. The Sandra Bernhardt role. Uh, I'm thinking Ali Wong. I think she can give like she could probably bring an interesting uh, kind of craziness to it. We haven't yeah. seen her act a whole lot, but Always Be My Maybe is more romantic comedy. But I yeah. kind of want to see what she could do that way. The one that's really hard, I think, uh, is the Jerry Langford role. Mm-hmm. It's hard to think of someone who has because you basically have Jerry Lewis trying to be like the Carson figure. Mm-hmm. It's hard to think of any of the late night people since Carson that really embody that real legendary kind of feel without actually just casting one of them, like Mm -hmm. without just actually casting like Letterman or something. So I I had a pretty hard time thinking of someone who could be it, uh, someone who could play that role who isn't actually that legend uh, without casting them directly. I don't know what you think. I got it. Uh, If I had to cast the Jerry Langford part, Stay with me and I'll explain why. Jim Carrey. Ooh. Jim Carrey famously wrote the check for himself to $20 million because that's how famous he was going to be someday and kept it in his wallet. Right. Uh, And then, so like, there's a little bit of Pupkin, I feel like, in him a little Mm. bit. Mm -hmm. The, um, The, and then also to Jerry Lewis has famously been the weirdo in every movie he's ever been in, except for this, where he's like, plays it pretty straight. Daniel day Lewis at like yeah. how realistic <laughs> he is in terms of like a, a like a serious actor. Yeah. But he's uh, like, no, I, I, you're going to have to let me go in and just put the gun down. Like he's, yeah, it was very weird. Yeah. And it's, it, it's, it was incredible. And like, and I love it when a, what I love it when an actor acts out of type. Mm. Now, Jim Carrey has done it before, but mm-hmm. in uh, like usually like kind of like 
more lighter dramas, I think. Like The Majestic comes to mind and stuff like that. And he's been in like a couple horror movies, but like that doesn't count. I want to see like kind of like a, a, a soul wrenching or like an honestly like troubled straight, almost father figure type person. Um, yeah. I would like to see that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that that would be very like, like Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting. We haven't seen a we haven't seen like a Jim Carrey pull, really pull that kind of thing off. Yeah, and he's he's yeah. tried to win an Oscar like before. Yeah, and like to like kind of like comedic results. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's times where I've like wanted his career to be like sit him down and be like, <laughs> listen, you're not gonna win. Just shut up and dance. Yeah, the way that we want you to. Okay, funny boy. Like, I want to hear "All Righty Then." I want to hear "Smoking." That's it. <laughs> Was uh, he nominated for "Man on the Moon"? Maybe. Oh, I don't think so. Maybe mm. a Golden Globe, perhaps. But yeah. No. Uh, and then, as far as like the, hmm, I mean, it's really hard to think about the Rupert Pupkin role for me, actually. Because you want someone who understands. The, it's it's difficult, and and, and this is. Um, I'm just, you know, hypothesizing here with no real evidence, but like there's, it's, it's tough in the age of social media to find somebody who can, I, who understands the neediness for lack of a better term yeah, and can understand it with irony. Mm. Um, at this point, you know, uh, when I think about like, Oh, well, what would that neediness kind of be today? I mean, like, like some YouTuber maybe, but then like, I don't think Logan Paul understands <laughs> that he's a joke. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think that that registers, mm. but I think that Robert De Niro probably was this needy at one point in his career mm. and then is able to detach himself and look back on his previous self mm-hmm. or a version of himself or, with other people that he had worked with that would be like my that would be my why he's effective at it mm-hmm. i don't know and i don't also see like a lot of like he's what 34 in the movie i don't see a lot of like mid-30s actors with a ton of like self-awareness <laughs> in terms of like yeah. um acting goes i don't see any like super serious um, I don't see a Daniel Day Lewis um, or a Robert De Niro or Al Pacino in their mid thirties. I mean, I'm sure that I'm, I, I'll be corrected, obviously, because mm-hmm. I'm sure that they're out there. But like most of them, you know, you get a couple Jurassic Worlds under your belt, and it's kind of hard yeah. to like <laughs> be like, hmm. yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't think Chris Pratt is I'm sure he's a fine actor, but like, what I consider him like. A Christian Bale? Absolutely not. Yeah, the the only thing I could think of for someone to do uh, the Jerry Langford role, so being the legend uh, without actually being the legend cast in the role uh, for the late night host idea is like I kind of think after seeing um, Uncut Gems, I would kind of like to see like an Adam Sandler fill that role. Mm-hmm. I think he could do an interesting thing with it. Uh, they would probably make him up to be older, maybe. That was the only thing I could really come up with for the Langford role. I re- I'm still at a loss. I could not think of a, someone to be the Robert De Niro role, though. I think that yeah. kind of thing doesn't quite exist for our generation as much. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe I think, you know, I could see instead of I think a great nod to, you know, famous queer comedian would be Kate McKinnon in the Sandra Bernhardt role. Mm. I think that would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Also, and this is like, you know, 
I, I, I don't care. I'm going to say it like Santa Barbara watching the movie yesterday. I was like, Oh my God, is she attractive? Yeah. The- she strips down to her underwear. And I was like, she has the best body I've ever seen on a female in my <laughs> entire life. <laughs> I was thinking that too. And it's so weird. And I think that where did, why do I remember so much of her, but nothing she's in from when we were younger though. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's like a Bernstein bears. Yeah. <laughs> like the Mandela effect comedian where we have all accepted the fact that she's famous, but can't put our finger on what it is. Yeah. I think she that, was both a figure of, I think was like considered a hottie at some point. And then also, um, like she's real loud and, and brash and in your yeah. face. She was one of those kind of figures, uh, at some point. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on the film King of Comedy and why is Joker maybe the reboot that we're only going to get of it? I think. I, I mean, it's fine. I think that the themes, Joker, having watched it, having watched it earlier, you know, years and years ago, and then seeing Joker and then watching King of Comedy yesterday. Mm. One, I'm like, it's what you feel like if you watch any movie that Quentin Tarantino loves. Mm-hmm. because you're just like oh he stole that shot he stole this shot you start oh, yeah. to I, i've started to after you when you do that a couple times if you watch dirty dozen and then watching glorious bastard mm. your stock of quentin tarantino kind of goes down a little bit because mm. you just you see what has been stolen from and he calls yeah. it an homage is it Todd like, phillips for yeah. uh, joker it's like the the shot of uh rupert pupkin in his uh, ostensibly his apartment that he's made an entire like fake film studio or he's imagining that part of it but he's standing in front of the full wall picture of an audience and imagining them cheering for him is the shot of joaquin phoenix and joker when he finally gets to come out uh to the late night audience it was just it's shot for shot yeah it's i mean that's and that's fine and i think todd phillips you know we mentioned old school which is like still fun i was watching it at work not too long ago <laughs> and like the they're like what's this and i'm like it's old school with will ferrell and they're mm. like they knew who will ferrell is they didn't know who vince vaughn was they didn't know who <laughs> luke, luke wilson was <laughs> and they're like this is hilarious and i'm like yeah man it's old school <laughs> and like the scene yeah. where like will ferrell like strips gets drunk and goes we're going striking yeah the thing and then shoots himself in the neck with the dart gun like stuff that you and I have seen maybe a hundred times, they were like, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I'm like, you idiots, this has existed your entire lives. Yeah. And I've gotten so, so angry at that. Uh, I don't know why I just brought that movie up. Oh yeah. Talk, talk about Todd Phillips. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's really, uh, is, is a, is a, is a good filmmaker. Mm. He, he, his, his, his stuff that he's done all of it has a, a, a voice that's kind of like similar and, and I respect it a great deal. I don't know how much I like Joker. It's just like, there's things about the King of comedy, which are uncomfortable and, um, also legitimately really funny. Yeah. Um, but when the they're, Joker, they're on the phone and trying to hash out with like the studio execs. They're just like, hold on now. We don't want to lose this opportunity. Like the, we're good. We don't want to lose airtime over this. Terrorists. Terrorists. What do you yes, mean? Sir. Terrorists. You might have this man go on the air, deliver a coded message. 
and very possibly 50 people around the country would lose their lives? You're out of your mind. No, I'm not out of my mind. Oh, come on. Now, that guy is going to be taped, and we're going to listen to what he says. And unless something horrendous is on that tape, we're going to put that tape on the air. Because all we're dealing with here, after all, is 10 minutes of talk show time against a man's life. And I don't see that as any argument. And also... Right. Like he's like, when he's on the phone with him, he's like, you can't just come in here. Have you ever heard of standards and practices like that? I ought, I like cracked up at that. We're fine. Thank you. I want to make it brief, Mr. Thomas. And I want to tell you, could, could I break in and ask you, could I speak uh, to Jerry? Uh, no, Jerry's not with us now. We're at a payphone, So don't try and have the, the call traced, which I've noticed you just did because I heard the sounds and I do know those sounds. It's kind of important, you know, so that we know that uh, he's in, uh, what do I say, your care. We've, we've taken care of that by bringing along an article of clothing that I know you will recognize and it will be satisfactory to everyone. It is not as easy as you think just to walk in the studio, go right on the show. No, Bert, if I could call you... Uh, well, if I could just say, there is no problem. The material is clean material. Do you know of something called standards and practices? Uh, yeah, and like, too, where he's got a gun to his head and he keeps, like... Mixing up the cue cards, so the cue cards <laughs> upside down, or that he like leaves a blank one in the middle of it. Yeah. Also, like the just the fact that he's used up so much space on the cue cards that there has yeah. to be like twelve <laughs> of them for like a couple sentences. Yeah, is really funny. Uh, the Joker, on the other hand, is just a kick to the stomach. Yeah. One after the other after the other, mm. or um. Uh, just you know, ninety minutes or whatever, and like, and as much as like, I got really excited in the movie theater when you know Gary Glitter starts playing, and he is finally the Joker in the mm. last act of the movie mm-hmm. because like I'd wanted something fun to happen, yeah, and that's like <laughs> when it did. And this so- is dark. This is dark, but I think that that film is it's a Rorschach test for different ideological positions you could have watching it because yeah. I think the mainstream media was very disappointed that it didn't result in a, a shooting of some kind. I think it was very ghoulish how they were like, watch out. Like there's going to, they're going to have to be police at the premiere of this and all of that. And then also uh, the critique of it, that it was sort of like an alt right leaning movie, I think is revealing because uh, all of the problems that happened to Arthur Fleck, the main character, are because of austerity, a loss of social funding, or program, program, yep. social programs. Uh, they tried to say the film was racist because it was like uh, sort of a multicultural menagerie of people that beat him up and things. But the 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 funny, the darkly funny part of that movie to me is uh, he, you know, there's like stock bros that are harassing someone. He stops them uh, and then beats up and kills them. Like it it definitely put a mirror up to what do we really think is problematic. Uh, and yeah, the, the Joker is very dark. You've, uh, you've pinpointed the only fun moment of it. And then it's only darkly at that when we finally get it. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I am, I love movies. I will see just about anything. Mm. Um, and I've tried to do this thing now when I'm enjoying a movie to ask myself like in the moment, okay, what's happening and why do I like it? Mm. And if you're able to do that, even or the opposite way, why don't I like what's going on right now? If you're able to do that, you start to de- 
understand art, I think, like a little bit better, at least your own relationship with art. Mm. And I found more often than not, like, if they're having fun on screen, you're having fun watching it. And yeah. like, there's a, the, f- the filmmaker is, or at least should be like aware of like what the audience should be feeling at this point. And it seems to me that, or at, at, at a certain point in the movie, you should go up, you should go down because like the brain or the, you know, like any muscle is going to get tired, like uncut gems we mentioned before, like mm. I almost couldn't stand yeah. because it was so tense the entire time. I didn't get a chance to calm down. Did and like all the sports related narrative ahead of time though. Cause I heard for people that really know NBA or whatever, they're just like, there's no tension in that film. Cause they, at least for that aspect of it, cause they know the result of the game that he's betting on. No, I'm not from New York. I'm not an asshole. I don't, yeah. I don't know <laughs> basketball, obscure basketball. Sports. Yeah. But- but no, yeah, most stressful film I've seen in in a decade, yeah. But like, there there has to be you build up tension, you add, you put gas in the tube until it's about to burst, then you slowly let it out, then you build it back up again, you slowly let it out. The Joker, in in much of that same way, to me is is um, is <laughs> just kind of like a dull throb pain. <laughs> <laughs> sustained with the exception of one dance sequence yeah it's um, a stomach ache yeah, yeah. I, I will say like one thing about that i liked about the joker in terms of depicting stand-up and why i think king of comedy kind of threw me for a loop a little bit was that um you never hear rupert pupkins act until the very end i think that was a smart move you've never you don't you kind of see his attempt at jokes in person but not his actual written material so mm-hmm. i think that was kind of cool you finally get his uh his late night set and I think I wonder how it read in 1982. Uh, like he's he's kind of reveals maybe his father abused him and things like that. And yeah. um, I think now that kind of in the in the era of uh, like single cam, dark, darkly funny kind of things about comics uh, that is read a little bit differently. But um, I wonder what that was like in 1982. That was probably more shocking for a comic to say on like, say if it was Carson, but um, in the Joker, you do get a little bit of uh, his act or you see other comics too. They have Gary Gullman uh, has a really good HBO special. People should check out. He's the comic, the kind of real comic that's portrayed in um, the Joker. Yeah, so it, when I had this idea of let's look at different fictional uh, accounts of stand-up comedy, this one always came up, so I'm glad I finally watched it. I'm glad you watched it with me. Yeah. Uh, Christian, do you have anything to plug? Do you have your social media handles? Christian's very funny on Twitter. I uh, on yeah, I mean, there's a couple things. If anybody wants to live on, and I've just you know kind of been on hiatus doing first tragedy then farce. But if anybody wants to, is anybody is interested in history and like a comedic take on history, and then some of the stuff that James has contributed to the show, please go ahead and look up first tragedy then farce on um, you know Stitcher or, or Apple Podcasts or whatever. It's on all those platforms. Um, there's I have no upcoming <laughs> improv right <gigs>. yeah <laughs> um uh yeah and then uh, on Twitter I'm at laps Christian but I I don't tweet a whole lot it's me just mostly scoping out other people's yeah uh stuff but yeah well Christian thank you for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me James 
Thank you for listening to Don't Sit in the Front. Please rate and subscribe and leave me a review. You can follow the show on Twitter with the handle don't underscore sit or don't sit in the front, all one word, on Instagram. Our music is composed by Chris Helking and our cover art is provided by Memory Bloom Studio. Thank you so much for listening and just remember to always punch up and keep swinging.